Friday. Uh, can everybody hear me? Okay, is it good? Okay. Uh, hope you got a packet when you when you came in. Uh, just a word of warning. I have no hearing in my left ear right now, so if you're going to speak up, you got to really speak up because I can't hear you. <laughs> so I can barely hear me right now. So uh, uh, anyway, in your packet, there are two things you've got there: a front and back. Fill in the blank. You can follow along with me in the little outline. And then uh, the second page is also front and back of, I hope, hope it is all the scripture references that I have in this packet for tonight. Uh, I did that because we're all over the map. We're in kind of different books. We're not going to probably read them all, but, we, but they're all there. And they're all in the ESV. A lot of people bring different translations and things like that. And that's not a bad thing. It just... Um, sometimes it's hard to follow along. You got a person reading King James and then jump over to New Living Translation and you, <laughs> you end up with uh, these complete differences and sometimes it's hard to follow along. So I've got the ESV there for us so we can, we can just follow along. They should also be in the order for the most part that they're presented in the packet so we can follow along that way in the little passage list there. Now, here's what we're doing for the next few weeks. Um, We've been talking, we've been going, walking through knowing God. Basically, we're, we're attempting as best we can to look through the scriptures and understand who the God is that is presented to us in the Bible as he has revealed himself to us. What is it about this God? Um, we've talked about everything from uh, the fact that he has attributes that he shares with us. He has attributes that he keeps to himself uh, he has uh, he is three persons in one essence. We've talked about many of those things, and through that study of the knowledge of God, then we break out into different sections. Like after we talked about God the Father, then we looked at Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and what they say about God and how that's totally different than what we believe, or how some of the things that they they say are different than what we believe, and how we can. Uh, engage with them on our front porch. Now we can talk to them. And so we did some of that. And now we come to a, a section in understanding God where we've talked about his created order. That's the last thing we went through, right? We did three weeks on creation and understanding different views of creation, how the world came about, how to read Genesis 1 and 2 um, with those, uh, whether you're an old earther, whether you're a young earther, how to read Genesis 1 and 2 in light of the, the creation account. And now we start to work our way into the created order itself. And we start with the spiritual realm, things unseen. Now, you're going to have to give me a little bit of grace here because the things that we're talking about, I can't see. Right? <laughs> Just like you. <laughs> so the nature of being spiritual and unseen is that I can't see them. And so... Uh, you know, unless God just opens my eyes to see them, I know only what is here in the scripture, and some of those things aren't abundantly clear. So it's it, it it's going to require me a lot of times going. I'm not sure, <laughs> you know. So we're just going to do the best we can, but we're going to break this down into a few different weeks. This week we're going to be looking at angels, and most of the things I've titled this the usual. Uh, because most of the things that we're going to talk about are the things that you typically hear about angels. And all I'm trying to do tonight is really establish a foundation for 
what we know about angels, what we know for sure about angels and what's pretty common knowledge and has been for um, the history of really Judaism and, and Christianity. Next week, we're going to flip the coin and we're going to talk about demons and the things that we know for sure about demons, the things that we're pretty sure about in regards to demons and Satan, and then the things that uh, are not true at all, the myth, myth busters we're going to play at the very end. Um, and so we're going to talk about those kinds of things. And then uh, I think we have business meeting the week after that, if I'm not mistaken. So it should be the third Wednesday of every month we have business meeting. So, then, so we'll take a break. And then the following week, we're going to discuss all of the crazy things that I'm pretty sure you've never heard before. <laughs> things that, uh, that we often kind of skip over, some crazy passages that we don't quite know what to do with always. Um, some things like uh, you'll probably bring to mind the Genesis 6, 1 to 4 passage about the Nephilim and uh, things like that, that what is this? And passages throughout the Bible that you kind of go, what in the world are they talking about there? I don't even know what that means. And then you kind of just keep going. We're going to try to dive into some of those and talk about how they relate to the unseen world and what the Bible is trying to depict about this unseen world. And so uh, a lot of those things that week, we're going to go I don't know, <laughs> but, but maybe. Um, so just kind of bear with us as we go through that. That is, if we stay completely on schedule, if we don't get bogged down or anything like that, then that's what we'll do. What I want you to do as, you, as we look into this, uh, this study, uh, think about the questions that you have about the spiritual realm. Write them down if you have to and bring them on Wednesday night. Because I don't, I, I want you to be part of this Wednesday night study. I think part of the charm, if you will, of Wednesday night is that you can ask the questions that you may not get the opportunity to ask. That doesn't mean you're going to get an answer. I'll just go ahead and tell you that. It doesn't mean you're going to have an answer. But, uh, but maybe, you know, maybe we'll uncover some things. And so, so bring those questions. That'd be good. If you want to email them to me first, that'd be fine too. I can bring them up for you. That, that's, that's okay. Um, so we're going to get started tonight. If you've got a packet, uh, we're going we're gonna to go through this. The first thing that we've got to do, just as far as an introduction, just to understand what we're talking about, um, when we talk about angels, we're talking about created spiritual beings, created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. So created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. And part of the thing that I think is really important to think about there is God could have created a billion different worlds. There's, a, a, there's more than that. There's an infinite number of possibilities that are there in his mind, but he created this one. And not only did he create this world, he created a spiritual world as well. And he tells us about it. Now, we don't know everything there is to know about the spiritual world, but we're not told nothing there's a lot that's in Scripture, and he reveals some of that to us. And so we're, we're going to kind of dive into that. But part of that is that he created these spiritual beings that have uh, some sort of moral judgment, it appears. They have a high intelligence that they don't have physical bodies. And the way that I typically think about the spiritual realm is 
existing at the same time and really in more or less the same space as the physical world, we just can't see it. Um, I guess the way that I think about it, I don't know if this is helpful for everybody, but if you've ever gone to a 3D movie and taken off the glasses, is the movie 3D? No, it's not. You see a blurry image, a little bit blurry image, that's in 2D, right? Um, Then you put on the glasses and everything jumps at you. (laughs) I think of the spiritual world in a similar way, that we are walking around this world without the glasses on and the the third dimension kind of exists out here. If we were given eyes to see it, if we had the glasses to look at, I think we would probably see a spiritual existence uh, everywhere around us, um, through the building here and, and out in the streets and things like that that uh, may or may not scare us, but, uh, but I think that's what we're looking at here when we talk about a spiritual realm. And so there's these uh, beings that have some sort of moral judgment, high intelligence, that they don't have physical bodies. They're spiritual in nature. Um, in, all of, uh, in all the things we're talking about here, angels are mentioned at least 350 times in the Bible and in at least 33 of the 66 books. So if you think about that for a second, that's, a lot, that's quite a bit of information that's out there about them, their actions, the things that they do, things that we can understand about them just by reading the scripture that's in front of us. So 350 times in 33 of the 66 books. And Revelation contains at least 80 references to angels. Revelation alone contains at least 80 references to angels and nearly 25% of all their appearance in Scripture happens in Revelation. Um, So Revelation is kind of a wealth of information as far as that goes. But not coincidentally, it is the hardest book to understand in all scriptures. So uh, we got that going for us. So what I want to do now is just work through a couple of things that we know we're, we know pretty much for sure as the scriptures reveal themselves to us. And I want to read a few of these passages or have you read a few of these passages out loud. Um, the first thing we know, angels were created as par- uh, created by God as part of the host of heaven. And that may even be in Genesis 1-1, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second. Somebody read for us the first, uh, the first verse there, the Genesis 2-1 in your passage list. The heavens and earth were finished and all the host of them. How about Exodus 20-11? Who wants to read that out loud for us? So in, the, in some of these passages where we see God's creation, we hear this word, the host of heaven. What is the host of heaven? You heard this word before? You see this? He's the Lord of hosts. What does that mean, the Lord of hosts? Anybody know? Armies. Remember uh, Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? Lord Sabaoth, his name. That's the Lord of armies is his name. Uh, who are the armies? It seems to be the angels, right? Ryan knows. 
Ryan knows. I know. He's got it down. <laughs> Ryan's going to tell. Um, he is the Lord of armies. So it seems as though, uh, in, at least in Genesis 2-1, we get this introduction that God created the heavens and their hosts, meaning that uh, whatever's up there is part of God's creation. And it, there's, I guess, some debate, perhaps, that it happens in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. So is it possible that when he created the heavens and the earth, regardless of which view you take on then the creation of the earth, that when he creates the heavens, that that includes the hosts of the armies of the beings that populate the heavens as well? Uh, it's possible. So uh, angels are created by God as part of the host of heaven. Um, the next one, there is some moral judgment exercised by angels that resulted in a fall. Now, we'll pick up more of this in a couple of weeks, but this is where things, this is where the rabbit hole starts to get pretty deep, <laughs> or can get pretty deep here. Um, but a couple of these passages, let's look at 2 Peter 2, 4. You've got there in your list. Somebody read that, and then somebody else read Jude 6. All right, Jude 6. Now, what is that? <laughs> uh, well, we don't know entirely. And again, we're going to talk about it more in a couple weeks. There's some things in there that kind of uh, well, can kind of cook your brain, I think, if you think about them too much, maybe. And, uh, and, and perhaps we haven't really spent a, a ton of time on them. And then you got Genesis uh, 6, 1 to 4. Somebody want to read that? This, this one I put as a maybe? Maybe this is what it's talking about as well? Look, Genesis 6, 1 to 4, who wants to read that? Yeah, so this passage right here, these four verses have kind of tripped everybody up, you know, in the history of the church and then on into Judaism, and there's been a lot of different debate on what exactly is meant here. That's why I put it in italics with a big question mark at the end of it, that uh, some will argue that that's what this is talking about, um, that it's talking about the same thing as Second Peter 2, 4, and Jude 6. We'll talk about more of that in a couple of weeks. But the point is, the thing that I think we can say with reasonable certainty is that there was some sort of moral decision on the part of angels akin, similar to the decision that was there with Adam and Eve and that it resulted in a, some form of a fall 
and that it resulted in them being locked in chains under gloomy darkness. We know that. And then we're also told some other things we'll talk about next week about the fact that, well, there's a, there's a serpent in the garden that's tempting the man and the woman to die. So we got that to deal with, too. There's, there's obviously another created being out there. Uh, we call him Satan. There's another created being out there that's tempting mankind to sin. So there's, there's that complication as well that we got to think, well, what's he doing there? Uh, here's the world that's created, and what does God say about that world? It's good. He goes through, if you walk through all of the create, creation, day one, um, for, starting in day one, in Genesis 1 and 2, he saw that it was good. And then at the end, he sees that it's very good. But then in Genesis 3, we've got a serpent that's tempting them to die. So something happened in there that's not good. And we got to kind of see if Scripture reveals anything about that. It may give some clues. 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6 may give us some clues. Genesis 6, 1 to 4 may also give us some clues as to what that was or the nature of it. We're not told much more than that. So, um, But point being, it does seem like we can conclude that there is some sort of moral judgment that's exercised by these angels and um, at some point it resulted in, in some sort of a fall. Uh, the next one, angels are spiritual creatures that cannot be seen unless uh, granted by God. Someone want to look at uh, Hebrews 1.14 right there on your list. Hebrews 1.14 and somebody also read Luke 24.39. Can I ask a quick question? Yes, please, Shannon. In this study, yes. Yes. Uh, I will say demons when I'm talking about uh, uh, the other side of the coin. All right? Yeah. Good question. Uh, so Hebrews 1.14, and somebody else read Luke 24.39. Okay, Luke 24.39. All right, how about Numbers 22:31 and 2 Kings 6, 17? And the Lord opened the eyes of the lamb, and saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, with his drawn sword in his hand, bowed down and fell on his face. All right, 2 Kings 6, 17. So it testifies yet again in Scripture that they're, they're spiritual beings, so they're a little bit different than us, and that they're all around, and unless we are given eyes to see, we cannot, we cannot see. So in the event that we do see, it is God opening our eyes to see. Uh, seems like a fairly simple point, but I think it is uh, pretty profound when you think about it. The next one, they, they guard, protect, and serve the saints. They guard, protect, and serve the saints. We just read Hebrews 1.14, which I think points exactly to that. 
Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? What is their purpose? What is the purpose of angels? What is it? Guard, protect, and serve. It would be easy, I think, to just skip over a study of angels, demons, and weird stuff that we find in the Bible. Because there's not a lot we we can't see it. There's not a lot we know about it except what few verses we've got available to us. And so it'd be really easy to skip over it, but there's some really profound insight when you start to look at what their purpose is. Again, God could could have created any world that he chose to, but he didn't. He created a world not only with you in it, but he created a world with them to serve you and minister to you. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that it's all about you. At the same time, what does that say about God? Yeah. If nothing else, it says that. A legion of angels. I mean, you have Elijah, sorry, Elisha, uh, there with the armies of the Lord, and he, he prays that this nervous guy sitting next to him, who's convinced he's going to die, would, that the Lord would open his eyes. And when he does, what does he see? The ministering spirits there meant to guard, protect, and serve that are all around him. There are numerous times in the Old Testament where we see angels being used to make the enemy flee. And it's for the purpose of God's people to protect and serve. Right? I, you know, it, it, the passages in Scripture and in Peter, he says, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. We see time and time again, not only that we're told that he cares for us, but we see evidence of it in just the created order of what he created for us um, to, to thrive and to protect us. Timothy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where he shows the contrast. The other thing is that they don't have a physical body. This is the question I have. How can they pull a rock back into the door? And how can they eat? Yeah. Um, well, let, two points. Give me, let, in two points, we're going to get to that exactly because there's some question there. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. The, the third session, we're going to look at the angel of the Lord, because that's one of those weird ones that we kind of need to deal with. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Good question. Good question. Yeah. Um, so, Timothy, I want to get to your point in not this next one, but the one after that. They first, they join us in worship of God. They join us in worship of God. Hebrews twelve twenty two. Somebody take that one. Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, 
Yeah, so um, I think what the author of Hebrews is pointing to there is that in worship, as we gather together as a body, he's saying, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come here to worship in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and what's with you? What is it? An innumerable gathering of heavenly angels, uh, uh, innumerable angels in, in festal gathering. So the, the, um, what seems to be apparent, uh, even really testified even in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament, is that when the, the people are gathered together worshiping the Lord, what they are doing in their worship is mimicking the worship of the angels around the throne in heaven. We've talked about this several times. I've talked about it from the pulpit from time to time. There's a reason why we do the things that we do in worship, why we don't just come in here and do anything we want to. I'm not disparaging people that, that do uh, um, coordinated dances and things like that and use that as a ministry and things like that, but that's not part of the worship that goes on inside of a church. We're instructed in Scripture, how to worship the Lord. Songs and hymns and spiritual songs, with prayers, with the reading of His Word. So there's, there's certain things that we do, and there's certain things that we're going to refuse to do. Because what we're doing is patterning our worship after the worship that's going on around the throne in heaven. So if you think about that for just a second... What kind of attitude should we have in worship? It seems to indicate that what we're doing is really serious. And it's not just to be kind of taken um, in sort of a, a loosey-goosey, do-whatever-you-want kind of way. Um, that we can actually make a mockery out of what is really going on in, in heaven. And um, so... The angels join us in the worship of God. Um, now, to Timothy's point here, the, second, the next one. Occasionally, they may be presented to us as human. Occasionally, they may be presented to us as human. Uh, look at uh, Hebrews 13.2. Who wants to read that one? Uh, you've heard this verse, yes? It blows your mind. Why does it blow your mind? What do you think about it? Yeah. Yeah. That, that guy you hand $20 to might not be your average ordinary uh, bum, but, but could be a, a, one of those ministering spirits um, sent to you. Uh, who knows? You know, I don't know what to do with that other than to say, yeah, I think that's what it means. I think there are times that we can uh, that cross paths with these ministering spirits that we would be otherwise totally unaware about. Uh, who they are, what they are, what they're doing here, um, those kinds of things and would have no knowledge. I'm sure most of you in this room, probably, I'm just guessing, just playing the odds, Probably most of you have either had an experience 
or know someone who has had an experience that is un, in, just not able to be explained. And uh, so I, I think in some of those instances you go, you know, I, I've had one of those and I, I'm, I, I don't really talk about it a, a lot except with people that know me best and we've kind of talked about it back and forth. And, but because when you share those kinds of stories, people think you're crazy, you know, and, and you kind of go, I know what happened and I'm not crazy. This happened. And it sounds weird and it sounds strange and well, it is weird and strange. <laughs> I mean, that's why I called this whole thing strange, right? <laughs> because it is, it is weird and strange when you, when you look at it. Um, but it seems as though not only are they ministering to us, but sometimes they let us know in some way or another that they are ministering to us, or maybe we don't know, and maybe we'll find out one day, or maybe we'll never know. I don't know. But um, I think to answer Timothy's question, it seems as though there are times in Scripture where the people know that they are angels, but they are presented to them in a human-like fashion. So he brings up the example of Lot, and you have this first Abraham sees the three coming to them, and he recognizes uh, what Christina pointed out is the angel of the Lord and then two angels that are with him, and the angel of the Lord stays with Abraham as he kind of begs him if there's how many righteous, uh, you know, all the way down to like five. And he's like, okay, fine, I'll spare. <laughs> you know, And so the other two angels go into the city. And what's apparent in that story is that the city sees the angels, first of all, so they see them. And second, they're confident that they are men because they want to take advantage of those two men that have come into the city. And then those two men, the angels, stretch their hand out the door and blind everybody in the pathway, and then everything changes, right? <laughs> um, so there's some strange stuff that happens there. But, but it seems as though they're presented to them as men, and the city, the people, the men of the city have no way of knowing otherwise. They're confident that those people are just, they're just out-of-towners. They're just visitors, and they're men just like everyone else. So... Uh, I think there's a, there's a pattern set in Scripture where this happens from time to time. And so the author of Hebrews, I think, is just making it known. It happens to you, too. You just don't, or it may happen to you, too. You just don't know it. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Um, next, they are not omnipresent, but can only be in one place at one time. Um, this is apparent in, let's, let's read the Daniel passage, Daniel, 12, uh, Daniel 10, 12 through 14. Who wants to read that? Okay, um, this is one of the passages we're going to talk about in a couple weeks because what is going on here? Um, Daniel has prayed to the Lord 
in Daniel chapter 10. And the Lord is answering him with an angel. An angel comes to, to make known to him what is going to happen. And the angel tells him, I heard your prayer. We heard your prayer. God sent me. I would have been here sooner, but I was resisted by the prince of Persia. And I got into this skirmish, and he fought me and, uh, and kept me from coming here. And then finally, I got some backup. Michael came and gave me some help and freed me up, and I left him there to deal with the battle, and I got out of there and came to you. And so this is what I'm talking about. There's passages in the Bible where you go, I don't know what to do with that right now. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Let's get on to Daniel. <laughs> Let's talk about that, right? So it's sort of strange uh, to deal with that, but uh, it's happening. And the point that I think at least we can say about that is they're not omnipresent, that it took him 21 days to get from one place to another because of, he was resisted. Uh, whatever that means, but he, he, was, he was resisted. Um, so they're not omnipresent. Questions so far? So far are these making sense as we're going through reading the scriptures? Okay. Um, they are greater in might and power than human beings. They are greater in might and power than human beings. On the back page of the scripture references, 2 Peter 2, 11, whereas angels, though greater in might and power... Do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Um, now, I think Peter there is talking about people that blaspheme, and uh, specifically, there's a altercation between Michael and uh, and the devil that's there in Jude over the body of Moses, and on and on. But um, I think Peter's referencing that same kind of thing that. Uh, the Michael tells Satan and Jude, uh, the Lord rebuke you. And I think, I think Peter's talking about that. But the point being is that they are greater in might and power and that they have the ability to do that if they so choose. Um, and so that's the only point that I really wanted to make there about that. Um, yes, how Shannon. Would you, how would you pronounce blasphemous judgment against them? Uh, saying, I damn you to hell. That would be a blasphemous judgment against someone. Um, but instead, if you read the passage in Jude, that corresponding passage in Jude, um, which is there about verse probably 8 or so, um, he, Michael tells, tells Satan, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, like, I'm, I'm not going to. I don't, I don't want to overstep my bounds. The Lord can, do, can handle all of this, but you're being, you're being a stinker right now, and that's kind of... <laughs> It's more forceful than that, but you, you understand. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, but the point being that I, that I think what Peter clues us into is that there is uh, obvious power. There's might and power with the angels. I think, again, back to the passage in Lot, uh, with Lot in Genesis uh, 19, I think it is, maybe 20, where, he, where they strike them blind right there just with a touch, uh, where they destroy, call down fire from heaven, on Sodom and Gomorrah, right there. So there's obvious power and, and uh, sort of uh, might that come with the angels. Not only that, but then in, in Hebrews also, we're told that Jesus, in becoming human, is made a little lower than the angels, right? So, the, there's a, so it seems like there's, a, there's a, a power structure, and humans are not as powerful as angels, right? They're, they're more powerful than we are. Um, okay, 
flip over to the, the back part of this. Um, scripture. Now, there, there's several names for angels that come to the surface as we go throughout the scripture, the scriptures, and we'll see them called different things. Scripture sometimes uses uh, terms such as sons of God or holy ones. I was going to make you write them all, but then I decided to be nice to you. <laughs> Sons of God or holy ones, spirits, watchers, thrones, dominions, principalities, and authorities. Uh, all of these are referred to uh, or in some way connected back to angels. We're going to talk more about this whole concept of sons of God and what this is, a council of God that comes up in Scripture in a couple of places in a, in a few weeks when we get to kind of the weird stuff. Um, but... Uh, the point being that there's several references that are made throughout Scripture to these sort of angelic beings, and, uh, and I've got the Scriptures listed down there for them. We're, we're going to skip over that one, and we'll go into um, the, the, the different kinds of angels that are presented to us in Scripture. So the first thing we have are cherubim. Cherubim are mentioned in Scripture, and they're guarding. The, the first place that they're mentioned is guarding the entrance of paradise, and uh, they're gazing upon the mercy seat of God. They're uh, constituting, uh, they make up a chariot that God uses to, to come to earth. So there's, there's that picture in Scripture in the Old Testament as well, that God uses the cherubim as, a, as sort of like wheels for a chariot uh, that he sort of drives to earth. The cherubim are depicted in Scripture as mighty ones. Um, they... Um, if you, you might think of them as sort of the, no, the nobility of the angels. That seems to be the way that they're presented to us because of the roles that they're given, guarding the mercy seat of God, guarding, the par- guarding paradise, guarding uh, all of these different things. The picture that we have in culture is chubby, fat little babies right? <laughs> that sit on your mantle. Uh, that, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Uh, I see... Really, examples of really powerful uh, angels in some places with multitude of wings. Um, so there you have it. Uh, who wants to read for us Genesis uh, three twenty four, maybe Exodus twenty five eighteen, and Psalm eighty verse one uh, in our passage list there. All right, Exodus twenty five eighteen. You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammer of hammer work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. All right, Psalm eighty verse one. I think the picture there that we get of God, and and I don't, I think this is. Um, I think it's more of an analogy than it is an, an actual representation of what's actually going on. But the analogy, you've seen those kind of depictions of the king on the throne and being carried by his sort of mighty men underneath. I think that's kind of the image that he's given and the, the, the ones that are carrying him, the ones that would be responsible for handling his throne would be the cherubim. So these are not, I don't think these are fat little babies. I don't, I don't think. I could be wrong. I, again, I can't see them. So <laughs> your guess is, is mine, but they're just not 
presented to us in Scripture that way, and so you know, I don't really know where that comes from except Hallmark. Um, Easy, Shannon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, so then the next group is the seraphim. That's S-E-R-A, S-E-R-A-P-H-I-M. Seraphim. Uh, the, we think that that word is derived from the Hebrew word that means uh, fire, which also is in connection with snake venom. Um, sometimes snakes are referred to as seraph because they, the venom that they, um, that they have. So there's, there's a connection to fire with the word seraphim. But the seraphim are mentioned only once in the Scripture, or only in one passage, I should say, in the Scriptures. And it's in Isaiah 6, verses 2 to 7. And um, the, 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 in distinction from the cherubim, the seraphim stand out as it seems to be there, at least in Isaiah, as servants uh, uh, round about the throne of God that sing praises to his name. So the seraphim are seen as, as guarding the holiness of God and constantly giving back praises to God there around his throne. But here's the thing about that, of drawing any hard, fast conclusions about who the seraphim are, is we only have the one passage. So they may have a multitude of other functions, we don't know them because he doesn't tell us. He, we do see that one, and so they're at least doing that in Isaiah, and uh, they take the, the coal and, and burn his, his tongue or his lips and uh, make him pure. So there's the seraphim. And then there's a third category of some sort of spiritual, angelic, heavenly creatures that are in both Ezekiel and Revelation and they, uh, they're the living creatures that are around God's throne. So you have the cherubim, the seraphim, and you have the living creatures. They're in Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4. If you make a note of that, Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4, you have examples there of these creatures that have multitude of wings, uh, many eyes all around, many faces, uh, face of a lion, uh, eagle, a man and uh, what is it? I only got one ear. Ox. Ox. There you go. I couldn't think of it. Um, but probably, most likely, representing all of the creatures that are on earth, um, the, the creatures of the air, the eagle, uh, the, I guess you'd say the king of the animals, which would be mankind, the lion, which would be the king of the beast, and um, the ox, which would be the king of the domesticated beast of the kind of thing. It's probably. I'm not, that's not a hill I'm dying on. I'm just saying that that's, <laughs> that's, that's most likely what's going on there. But the, these uh, living creatures that are around the throne have some sort of responsibility, it would seem, over the, over the creatures that are on earth. Um, now, it is true, though, that anytime we see the word angels, now, not talking about cherubim, not talking about seraphim, not talking about living creatures, but anytime we see the word angels, we don't see any wings connected to them. So in our, in our lore, we have, every time you see the angel, you got the robe and you got the wings. We don't see that in connection with strictly angels. So as an example, there's two angels who are mentioned specifically by name in Scripture. Now, when I say this back to Shannon's comment, this is excluding 
uh, Satan, or we'll talk about that next week, Satan or uh, any, demon, any demons, we're, we're, we're specifically talking here about two angels that are still on the good side, let's say that way. Um, Michael and Gabriel are the only two mentioned by name in Scripture. Michael, specifically. Gabriel, it seems like, has the responsibility of, he, he tells us that he, uh, uh, well, he's a messenger. So obviously in the times that we see Gabriel show up throughout the Bible, he, gives, he comes to give a message. And then he also tells Zechariah in, in John 1. You remember what he tells Zechariah? Is it John 1 or 2 maybe? Remember what he tells him? Zechariah has a question. He's like, how do I know for sure that my wife is going to have a baby? And what does Gabriel tell him? What's that? He does, tell, he does silence him. He makes him mute, but he tells him something first. He tells him something about himself. He says, I am Gabriel. And then he gives his, his role. I stand before God. Therefore, be silent. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's kind of, it's sort of awesome because it's like an angel name dropping, you know, <laughs> like just the once, like he just sort of kind of gives a name drop and I stand before God and therefore you'll be silent. And it's, it's kind of awesome. It's sort of a, a chilling moment. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's, sort of a, it's sort of an interesting thing. So there's Gabriel. We don't know a whole lot about him, only the little details we get here and there. We do see him on occasion deliver messages in Daniel and various other places as well. And then we have Michael, who is called an archangel in Jude 9. Uh, you can read Jude 9 there. He says, but when, here's the passage I was talking about, uh, Shannon. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you, right? So it wasn't a, he wasn't a, presuming to be God himself and, and pronounce a judgment. He let the Lord do that. Um, so he's called an archangel there in Jude 9, and then he's called a chief prince in the passage we read of Daniel, where he says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes... So I would take the chief princes and archangel to probably be the same thing. Um, but anyway, so he's called a, a chief prince, um, and he appears to be some sort of leader of an angelic army. If you look in Revelation 12, 7 to 8 there, he says, Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer a place for them in heaven. And so there's Michael who has a legion of angels, it seems, at his disposal that is, he's in charge of some sort of angelic army. All right. Any questions about that before we get on to the last two items here? I think so. Okay. I think don't so. Call them at all. I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> and the only reason I say that is because they're presented to us differently uh, than the angels are presented to us. Uh, but, you know, again, not a hill I'm dying on, just sort of kind of making the best call I can out of the scriptures that I see. It seems like they are different in, I would say, different in function. Different, probably in appearance, 
in some way, different probably in appearance, and uh, they're presented to us in just differently. Uh, it seems like the cherubim and the uh, seraphim especially and the living creatures are really mostly around the throne of God and, and guarding, like standing guard over something, whereas the angels seem to be fighting and messaging and doing all kinds of, of other things that seem to be business related. Boy, I don't know beyond that. Right, <laughs> but it sounds reasonable. We'll just go with it. <laughs> yeah. Can they be wounded? Uh, there is no indication that I know of except that Satan was defeated, but it seems like that passage in Revelation 12 is in reference to Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, I think. It's debatable what's happening there in Revelation 12. I, I get that. But what, I, what it looks like to me is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension leaves Satan powerless. So when it says, but he was defeated and he was you know, thrown out of heaven, it seems like the accuser, which we'll talk about next week, um, has no place before the council to accuse the brothers day and night because the death of Christ. So I don't, it doesn't, outside of that, I don't see any injuries. Well, that's a good question. Uh, when it says locked up, I think, I'm inclined to think that is they are inactive, out of commission, prisoner of war kind of language where they're, they're done away with, right? I, um, they can't pre- uh, assume their normal activities. And it seems to be in connection with what they've done. They've done something so heinous that God doesn't even give them a leash. He totally locks them away, I guess. Um, best I can make of it. But there's, there's two final things. These are kind of myths and legends and the sort of questions that go on about angels. One is, do we become angels when we die? Now, some have taken a passage in Matthew 22. So it's Matthew 22, 30. I've got it down there for you. It says, this is Jesus talking. He says, for in the resurrection, and he's talking about people, because there's a question posed to him about, well, if, if a person has divorced or has lost their husband up six, six times, and they marry the seventh one, when they die and they go to heaven, well, whose husband will they be? And there's some irony there that we won't get into about the questions being asked. But Jesus says to them, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And some take that, have taken that and gone, see, we're going to be like angels in heaven, so when we die we're going to be like angels. But um, I think Jesus is saying there that as the angels are not married, so they will not be married. And I think proof of that is the following passage, Luke twenty thirty four to 36, where it's corresponding to the same thing. He says, Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that, uh, to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. I think what he's pointing to there is that there's a reason they can't be married, and that, that's what I'm talking about, that when they're in heaven they can't be married and are like angels. So I don't think that you will ever be anything other than human. You and I will be human and only human because we were created as humans and we will be humans and we will be given bodies and 
there's that. Okay, uh, so I don't think we'll ever change into angels, which I think, as we've talked about, are, are different beings entirely. Now, the other question that typically floats around about angels is, do we have individual guardian angels? Now, a lot of you will laugh that question off, I know, uh, because I have before as well, but it actually, there's actually, it does come from some places in Scripture where people go, hey, maybe we do have guardian angels. Look at the last two passages before we close here, um, the last two verses that we've got there. Matthew 18, 10, Jesus is telling them about um, taking care of the sheep that are in your congregation, essentially. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And by little ones, he means Christians, people that believe in me. One of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angel always sees the face of my father who is in heaven. So people have taken that and said, oh, we each get an angel. We have a guardian angel. Um, that might be true. It may also be that instead of playing man to man, they're playing zone. All right? That's possible. So that would mean that you don't have an individual angel, but it doesn't necessarily exclude the possibility that one angel is put in charge of each human. Um, Acts 12, 14 to 15, this one is very strange. Um, Peter has been in prison, and it's nighttime, and Rhoda, the servant girl, is in the house. You remember this story? Um, Peter comes to the gate, and he starts banging on the gate, and he's been let out of prison by an angel, and he's there banging on the gate, and he's saying, let me in, basically, it sounds like. And Rhoda, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, that's the people that are inside the house, they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. All right, now some people have taken those two passages and said, well, we each get our own angel. Well, they're in the last passage in Acts. It seems like the reason that I think that would be weird, if that's what it's talking about, that we have our own angel, is that the reason that they say it is his angel is because it sounds like Peter, right? Isn't that what's going on in the passage? Rhoda hears the voice. She recognizes Peter's voice. She goes in and says, it's Peter. They say, no, it's his angel. If we each got an angel, follow me on this, if we each got an angel, and that's what this passage was saying, then those angels mimic our voices, right? That would be the logic you would have to conclude there, is that, well, the angel sounds like Peter, so his angel must also assume his identity in some sort and mimic his voice? I don't know that that's what it's talking about. Uh, there's a couple of solutions that I think might be going on here. And beyond that, who knows? Um, one is there's some Hebrew traditions that say that that's exactly what angels do, is they sort of impersonate the person that they represent. So it may be that they're influenced by that cultural tradition, but the scriptures you see don't tell us that. That's just part of their cultural tradition. Luke, being a faithful recorder, is simply reporting what was said, not saying this is true. That's one option. The other, I think, might be that the word angel might have taken on the connotation in the first century that, uh, of like your spirit, your soul, 
right? That Peter, they're saying Peter's dead, and what we're seeing is his ghost, right? Coming to talk to us? Yeah. That there may have been some sort of colloquial understanding of the word angelos, which means messenger or whatever, that might have kind of taken on that connotation of like your ghost. And so that's the reason it sounds like Peter. That's the reason it may even look like Peter is because Peter's been killed. He's been in prison. He's been killed. You're being spooked out by his ghost. Don't worry about it. Just move on. That is hilarious. <laughs> right? We're not going to go out and Right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So, but ne- nevertheless, what I would say, though, about the individual guardian angels, I personally doubt it, but I couldn't rule it out. There's not enough scripture one way or the other to either rule it out or rule it in. So I would just say, mm, maybe, uh, who knows. Uh, I don't think there's enough scriptural evidence for me to say, yes, you do. So go on thinking that. Uh, I think there's at least enough to say you should be careful about making that kind of statement because I don't think the scriptures make that kind of statement. Um, that being said, it seems evident that in the, even just looking at what the scriptures reveal to us about angels, there's a couple of things that are, that come to the, the foreground that I think are really important for us to meditate on, to think about. Um, one is that these angels sit around the throne and worship God and have been since they were created. It doesn't appear that they're getting tired of it. Right? I think that's interesting because when I talk to people about heaven uh, or eternal life, New heavens and new earth is what we're waiting on, right? Is where we'll be. Um, I, I, there's some people that will say, is all we're going to do is just sit around and, and worship? Because that sounds, like, sounds boring to me. Um, and I would say, I don't know, because I've never been there, and I can't see it. But I can guarantee you that it's not going to be boring. Whatever it is, it's not going to be boring. The, the least thing that I'm worried about is that I'll be bored for eternity. <laughs> These have been around the throne of God, in the throne room of God, and have worshipped God since the dawn of creation and have seen every movement he's made since, he began, since they began being aware of his moving. And they're not bored. Um... The other thing that I think is important for us to think about and reflect on is that he loves us enough to give us help and has never, ever left his children without help. I think that's amazing. If you go all the way back to the Old Testament, not only are angels active in the Old Testament, even in Genesis, but the prophets come who give to them the word of the Lord straight from God's mouth, essentially. He's giving them help in addition to the angels. You go to the New Testament, you have Jesus in person giving us help the, the most help we could ever ask for, which is dying for our sins. And then Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to go and you're going to stand before 
kings and you're going to testify and they're going to beat you mercilessly and don't worry about what you're going to say because what? I'll, I'll give you the words. And it's necessary that I go away and you want me to go away because when I go away, what's going to happen? I'm going to give to you the, the helper, the Holy Spirit. He has never left us without help. Sometimes we can see it. Sometimes we cannot. Sometimes we know it's there. and Sometimes we don't. But he's never left his children without help. And I think we in the New Testament era are doubly blessed because not only do we have the Holy Spirit, but we also have the angels, <laughs> even if we're unaware of their presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for a time to just look in your word and just see what it says to us about the fact that you have given to us help. You have provided it for us. And we didn't even know to ask for it, but you've given it to us. And you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us to discern right from wrong, true from false, sin from righteousness, to help testify to the truth of Christ in his resurrection. And we believe it because he's keeping us. And so we are grateful for that, that you have provided that for us. What a wonderful thing that is. Lord, you are merciful, you are mighty, you are glorious, you are just, you are righteous, and you are loving, and we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.